Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to tonight's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce Professor Fabian Peter from the University of Warwick, and Fabian's going to talk to us on normative facts and reasons. Um, I first got to know Fabian's work, I think, before her, and in, in particular, um, a very important book in Health and Justice called Public Health, Ethics and Equity, which I think was probably the first book in philosophy that uh, looked at issues of justice and health, and uh, Fabian also has an excellent paper in that volume. And so it's a staple for our teaching at UCL on the uh, PPE of health, philosophy, politics, and economics of health degree. It still is being used regularly, and we, I even taught a research seminar on it, so uh, I'm very pleased that you're here tonight. Uh, Fabian's also better known probably for her work in political philosophy, um, her book Democratic Legitimacy, and her work on epistemology and political philosophy in that growing overlap area where people are thinking particularly about how members of the public form their political beliefs and uh, urgent issue at the moment, how they can reform them some other way, which is being worked on throughout the world uh, with not enough success. <laughs> but anyway, um, tonight she's uh, delivering her paper, uh, Normative Facts and Reasons, and there's a handout, so can I just check whether anyone doesn't yet have the handout? Is it, is it? Okay, I think we're all good. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Joe and Guy and everyone at the Aristotelian Society for inviting me. It's obviously um, a delight to be here. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I already apologized to Joe for the topic of my talk. Um, he would have preferred a paper in political philosophy. Um, this is not the style of philosophy he likes, um, but he assured me it wasn't as bad as he feared. Um, so <laughs> I hope I'll get away with that. Um, Okay, so I'm going to focus on a currently popular view of the currency of practical normativity. That view associates practical warrant, warrant for action, with reason-based justification. We can, I, or I call this view the centrality of reason's view. Joseph Raz, who probably doesn't hold the view, has helpfully described it as follows, quote, the normativity of all that is normative consists in the way it is or provides or is otherwise related to reasons. My main goal in this paper is to present an alternative to this centrality of reasons view. I will identify a type of practical warrant that is not based on reasons and does not otherwise involve reasons and defend the view that there are two types of practical warrant. The two types of practical warrant I have in mind are entitlement warrant in Tyler Birch's sense on the one hand and reason-based justification on the other. The possibility of two types of warrant is familiar in epistemology and in fact the two types of warrant are frequently invoked but it tends to be overlooked in uh, debates on practical normativity, and I think um, that is a problem, that we are overlooking an important aspect of uh, practical normativity. So the view I will defend in this paper rests on a distinction between normative facts and normative practical reasons. The thought is that normative facts, qua facts, give rise to entitlement warrant for action, but they do not, qua facts, give rise to reason-based warrant. Normative practical reasons, I will argue, are propositional representations of fact-based favoring. My argument for the view that there are two types of practical warrant builds on objections to a prominent version of the centrality of reasons view. That version is committed to the following two claims. Factualism about reasons on the one hand and reasons fundamentalism. Factualism about reason is the view that normative practical reasons just are or are given by facts. And reasons fundamentalism is the claim that reasons understood in this factualist sense cannot be explained or analyzed further. We might also describe this view as non-naturalist uh, non factualism about reason. 
I want to reject both of those claims. So the way, I will, uh, the way I've structured my talk is I will first distinguish the target view, so this non-naturalist um, version of factualism about reason as a popular interpretation of the centrality of reason's view, and present objections to this view. That's section two on your handout. Next, I will argue that the best response to those objections is to distinguish between normative facts and reasons. That's section three. I then further develop the alternative view, the alternative to the centrality of reasons view, on the basis of the distinction between entitlement warrant and reason-based warrant for action. That's section four. And then I end the paper with a discussion of some objection to this alternative view that um, includes both normative facts and reasons and entitlement warrant and reason-based warrant. So section two, where I will try to argue against one interpretation of the centrality of reasons view, the non-naturalist version of factualism about reasons. There are many versions of the centrality of reasons view that are not committed to factualism, and there are different inter interpretations of factualism about reasons. So I'm not going to focus on the non-factualist interpretations of the centrality of reasons view here. I'm just going to focus on factualism, and I'm going to focus on my target. Uh, so the target of my objection is one particular version of factualism about reasons. So factualism about reasons can be, can be interpreted in different ways. In particular, they are naturalist and non-naturalist versions of the view. The naturalist version we might associate with the work of Mark Schroeder in Reasons and Passions, and the non-naturalist version of the view with the work of, for example, Jonathan Vancey, or Derek Parfit, or Tim Scanlon, and also um, Joseph Raz. The difference between them is that the naturalist versions allow for an explanation or reduction of fact-given reasons in terms of other non-normative facts, while non-naturalist versions combine factualism about reasons with the claim that normative practical reasons cannot be reduced or explained in terms of other normative or non-normative properties or concepts. So this second claim is what I earlier called reasons fundamentalism. So my focus in this paper will not be on the naturalist versions of factualism about reasons, but on this non-naturalist version, which combines factualism about reasons with fundamentalism. Um, and in what follows, just to keep it simple, whenever I refer to factualism about reasons, I mean this non-naturalist uh, version, not the naturalist one. So, if we focus on this non-naturalist version of factualism about reason, there's a further distinction that needs to be made. A first interpretation of this non-naturalist version of factualism about reason is in terms of a truth-maker understanding of facts. We find this interpretation of factualism in Jonathan Dancy's work, for example. And of course, his work has been very influential in shaping factualism about reasons. On the type of view that Dancy holds, on this version of factualism about reasons, the relevant facts are obtaining states of affairs that make normative claims true. As Dancy explains, it is her, quote, being ill that gives me reason to send for the doctor. And this is a state of affairs, something that is part of the world, not a proposition, end quote. Dancy follows Platinga here, who distinguishes ontologically between, between things that are capable of being the case and things that are capable of being true. Dancy comments that what favors certain actions must be the things capable of being the case, states of affairs. That is because the things capable of being true, propositions, merely represent. What favors certain actions is that which relevant propositions represent. It is what is actually the case, not the representation of what is the case, not even a true representation of what is the case um, that does the favoring. So Dancy's claim is that in order to make sense of the realist intuition that there's a factual constraint on practical normativity, the source of normativity must be embedded in the facts, 
in the states of affairs, not in the propositional representation of those facts. The key claim here in this interpretation of factualism about reason is what I call normative factualism. Normative factualism states that there are normative facts understood as states of affairs that have the power to favor action. Dancy's argument does not prove or aim to prove that normative factualism is true. That is, that there are normatively loaded facts that have the power of making certain actions wrong or right. The argument only aims to show that if normative factualism is true, the source of normativity must be embedded in the facts and not in the propositional representation of those facts. And I think Dancy is right about this point. The current literature on practical normativity, among those who focus on non-naturalist versions of factualism about reason, do not follow Dancy on this point, however. Instead, many philosophers think that normative factualism is unnecessarily metaphysically demanding, and I'm sure you can easily see why. It appears to unnecessarily postulate normative, normative entities that are hard to account for. We can call this objection to normative factualism the metaphysical objection. In an attempt to get round this objection, many factualists about reasons advocate an interpretation of factualism that does not commit them to normative factualism. So for example, Tim Scanlon in Being Realistic About Reasons writes, quote, normative truths do not require strange metaphysical truth makers, end of quote. The main alternative interpretation of factualism about reason is not in terms of a truth maker understanding of facts, but in terms of an understanding of facts as true propositions. We find the clearest articulation of this interpretation of factualism about reason in the work of Tim Scanlon. As you may or may not uh, be familiar um, with this book, so let me just elaborate a little bit of how he uh, fleshes out factualism about reasons. Uh, he does so uh, with reference to what he calls the reason relation. The reason relation is, quote, a four-place relation R, holding between a fact P, an agent X, a set of conditions C, and an action or attitude A. This is the relation that holds just in case P is a reason for a person X in situation C to do or hold A, end of quote. So the claim is for example, to illustrate this idea of a reason relation, that in certain stances C, the fact that um, um, calling a doctor would save her life is a reason for agent X to call the doctor. So the relevant fact here that calling the doctor would save her life is not a state of affairs in this interpretation, however. Scanlon rejects the interpretation of facts as truth makers and identifies fact with true thoughts instead, building on Alan Gibbard's work here. Thoughts, I take it, are individuated by their propositional content. And the fact P, that is the reason, is thus a true proposition on this interpretation, not a state of affairs. What should be said about those two competing interpretations of factualism about reason in this non-naturalist sense. Starting with the facts as truth makers interpretation, note that we need to distinguish between two claims. The first is that normativity resides in the facts, in the state of affairs. I labeled this claim normative factualism and I already expressed my support for this claim. The second claim, however, is that such normative facts, states of affairs, are reasons, and I believe that's a mistake. My main objection against the facts as truth makers' interpretations of factualism about reason is not the metaphysical objection, however, the one that's normally wheeled in, wheeled in here. Instead, I think the main problem with factualism about reasons as based on a truth maker understanding of facts is what I call the normativity objection. The objection states that the normative practical reason must be the sort of thing that we can reason with and which can in this way structure our practical thoughts. Facts understood as states of affairs are not that sort of thing. They do not mesh with reasoning in the right way. 
As I understand this normativity objection, it is concerned with the way in which we should expect reasons to figure in our deliberation about how we should act. We can certainly reason about state of affairs, and state of affairs may bear on our deliberation about how we should act via the content of our beliefs about them. In the non-normative case, the grey clouds that I see are likely to bear on my deliberation about whether or not to take an umbrella. In the normative case, the agitated stand up state of my friend that I can sense is likely to bear on my deliberation about what to say next. But states of affairs do not bear on our <coughs> deliberation in a way that qualifies them as reasons, in my view. Reasons must be the sort of thing that we can entertain in thought or assert to others when trying to determine how we should act and when trying to justify our actions. Reasons should be able to guide our thoughts and facts as states of affairs do not guide our thoughts. They make some of our thoughts true. So states of affairs are the wrong sort of things. Um, they're not reasons. If we reject the fact as truth makers interpretation of factualism, this leaves us with the facts as true propositions interpretation as an alternative. What should we say about this interpretation? The answer to this question depends on what the facts are that are at the center of the reason's relation. Or in other words, what do those true propositions represent? On one interpretation, the common one, the relevant facts are true, true propositions about the non-normative world. They are non-normative facts. It is this view that avoids normative factualism because it only invokes non-normative facts and thus presents an answer to the metaphysical objection. If the facts involved in the reason relation are not normatively loaded state of affairs, then factualism about reasons does not um, entail normative factualism. This version of the facts as true propositions interpretation of factualism about reason runs into an objection of its own, however, and I call it the transparency objection. The objection is that a key normative question is what makes a consideration a reason and that a conception of practical normativity that fails to answer this question is incomplete. The problem arises because the factualist about reasons wants to treat normative practical reason as normative rock bottom while not offering an answer to the question of what makes the non-normative facts that are at the center of the reasons relation reasons. There are true thoughts about the non-normative world and true claims about normative reasons for action, but it remain, remains mysterious how they relate. And I would say this is not satisfactory. And I should say that in this part of the paper, I greatly benefited from John Skorupski's work, um, in case um, that isn't obvious to everyone. Tim Scanlon considers an objection along those lines and in reply claims that the idea of a normative reason is intelligible by itself and does not require further analysis or explanation. But I do not think that this is the right answer to the transparency objection on the following grounds. If we take the view that there are facts that, that can give rise to reasons and that the relevant facts that are at the heart of the reasons relation are true proposition, we are facing the question of what those propositions represent. And there are only two options here. What they represent is either non-normative or normative. If it is non-normative, we are lacking the crucial ingredient of a theory of practical normativity because we fail to answer the question in virtue of what a non-normative fact acquires the normative status of a reason. It may be true that we recognize a reason when we see one, as Scanlon claims, but a theory of practical normativity should go deeper and explain how a non-normative fact relates to this special normative status. That is the transparency objection. We can avoid the transparency objection if we allow that the true propositions that are reasoned represent something normative. The reason relation is then no longer a black box. Instead, we are able to explain reasons as propositions that truly represent state of affairs with the normative power to favor action. Of course, while we're avoiding the transparency objection this way, we're reintroducing normative factualism, the claim that there are states of affairs with the power to favor 
action. So this brings me to the third section of my paper. If we go down that route, reasons are propositions that truly represent state of affairs with the normative power to favor action. To clearly distinguish this view that has been emerging from the previous discussion from the previous two interpretations of factualism about reasons in this non-naturalist sense, I propose we call this view of reasons propositionalism about reasons. Propositionalism about reasons, thus understood, is committed to normative factualism. Normative facts are state of affairs that have the power to favor action. I will sometimes refer to the relation between such states of affairs and the action that they favor as fact-based favoring or the fact-based favoring relation. Normative practical reasons, by contrast, are true propositions. While such propositions represent fact-based favoring, reasons and normative facts remain distinct. The true propositions that are reasons represent normative facts and they are made true by normative facts. Let me flesh out this view a bit more, drawing on Christine Korsgaard's work, especially in her paper on acting for a reason. There she draws a helpful distinction between acting in response to a fact and acting in response to the description of this fact as a reason for action. She illustrates the distinction with the example of a lioness. The lioness may respond to a fact and say, bring her cops to safety, but in all likelihood, not under the description of this fact as a reason for action. Human beings, by contrast, Korsgaard argues, can respond to a fact under the description of that fact as a reason for action. For example, we might respond to the fact of her being ill under the description that she needs help and call a doctor. So the, con the contrast is between facts as state of affairs and normative practical reasons. Reasons, as already explained earlier, are not state of affairs, they are descriptions or representations of state of affairs. And what is distinctive of normative practical reasons is that they represent states of affairs as favoring certain actions. Korsgaard, of course, uses this idea that there is such a distinction to develop a constructivist theory of reasons. But we don't have to follow her down that route in order to grasp the significance of a distinction between facts as state of affairs and normative reasons for action. On the view that I'm developing here, the relevant distinction is between normative facts as states of affairs that have the power to favor action, I already said that a few times, and normative practical reasons as propositional representations of fact-based favoring. To illustrate the idea again, going back to the same example, suppose the normatively loaded fact of her being ill favors calling the doctor. Your reason for calling the doctor is a propositional representation of this fact-based favoring, that she needs help, for example. Propositionalism about reasons, as I'm interpreting it here, in conjunction with normative factualism, has several advantages, I think. It can accommodate key realist intuitions about there being a factual constraint on practical normativity. And um, this is desirable, I would say, given the significance we seem to attach to practical normativity and to moral, normati no moral normativity in particular. <coughs> and also um, given that it seems that even ideal practical reasoning can often err. Propositionalism about reasons supports these claims because it takes normative practical reasons to be true representations of a fact-based favoring relation. The version of propositionalism about reasons that I have presented also avoids some important objections that have been raised against attempt to capture these realist intuitions through a factualist account of reasons. So importantly, the view that I'm developing here avoids the transparency objection as already explained, if the true propositions that are reasons are reasons in virtue of the normative facts that they represent, then we have opened the black box that was the reason relation and offered an account of what makes a reason. 
Propositionalism about reason also deflects the normativity objection. Recall that the objection is that the sort of thing that normative practical reasons are is the sort of thing that we can reason with and thus get a grip on our practical thoughts. As we saw, the main target of this objection is the facts as truth makers interpretations of factualism about reasons. Facts in the sense of state of affairs are the wrong sort of thing. They do not mesh with our reasoning. But propositionalism about reasons, as I interpret it, is not affected by this objection. Propositions mesh with our reasoning because propositions just are the material of at least some of our thoughts. They give content to our beliefs and desires, to our affirmative assertions and to our doubts. Okay, so so much for the distinction between normative facts and reasons. Now the next claim is that this um, that normative facts and reasons give rise to two different types of practical warrant. That's section four. My arguments against factualism about reason and in favor of a combination of normative factualism and propositionalism about reasons entail that we abandon the centrality of reason's view in favor of a view of practical normativity that makes space for both normative facts and reasons. My main, in this sec my main aim in this section is to further develop and defend this alternative view by focusing on the following two interrelated claims. Facts, a state of affairs, can be a source of normativity without being reasons, and practical warrant, although it often involves reasons, does not um, necessarily involve reasons. So how are we supposed to make sense of fact-based favoring that does not involve reasons. Here's where I think Tyler Burge's uh, work in epistemology uh, is helpful. So Tyler Burge introduced a distinction between entitlement warrant and reason-based justification. I have a quote on the handout where he captures the distinction. So Burge says, quote, Entitlement is epistemically externalist in so much as it is warrant that need not be fully conceptually accessible, even on reflection, to the warranted individual. The individual need not have the concepts necessary to think the propositional content that formulates the warrant. Entitlements that I shall discuss are epistemically externalist in the further sense that the warranting features include relations between the individual and an environment. The other primary subspecies of epistemic warrant is justification. Justification is warrant by reason that is conceptually accessible on reflection to the warranted individual. As Burge characterizes it, entitlement is an externalist form of warrant in two senses. First, it is externalist in a relational sense. The warrant depends on the objective relation in which the individual whose perceptual belief is under evaluation stands to the world and not on subjective attitudes. Second, entitlement is externalist in a content sense. The warrant need not be conceptually accessible to the warranted individual even on reflection. By contrast, reason-based warrant Birch claims, is internalist, at least in the content sense. A reason is conceptually accessible to the warranted individual. He does not comment, as far as I can see, on the question of whether reason-based warrant is also internalist in the relational sense, but I take it that is the view. If we try to apply this view now to the practical case, where we're considering warrant for actions, not for perceptual states, we depart, um, obviously, from the centrality of reason's view and introduce the idea of entitlement warrant for action. And I propose we can apply it in the following way. Normative facts entitle us to act in a certain way. Paraphrasing Scanlon's characterization of the reason relation, we can say that entitlement specifies a relation between a normative fact, a state of affairs, a context C, an agent X, and an A, action A. 
an agent X is entitled to do A in context C if and only if there is a normative fact that favors doing A in this context. This fact-based favoring relation is externalist in both senses that Burge mentions. It is externalist in the relational sense in that does, does not depend on attitudes of the agent. It is the normative fact that in a given situation gives rise to the entitlement and not the agent's attitudes towards that fact. In addition, it is also externalist in the content sense in that the warranted agent need not have conceptual access to the favoring relation, not even on reflection. To be warranted to do A in the entitlement sense does not entail that one can represent the favoring relation that supports doing A in propositional form. Reason-based justification for action contrasts with entitlement in the following ways. Reason-based warrant on this propositional view that I've developed in the first part of the paper is internalist in the content sense. A reason is, qua proposition, at least in principle, conceptually accessible. Conceptual accessibility is given because a normative reason is a proposition describing a favoring relation and concepts are the building blocks of propositions. Conceptual accessibility is compatible, of course, with denying the truth of a proposition. For example, I can accept that the proposition, she needs help, if true, is a reason for calling the doctor while denying that the proposition is true in the particular context. Is reason-based warrant also internalist in the relational sense on this view that I'm developing in this paper? That's a little bit more tricky. I want to answer yes and no. The yes part is the following. The content of a normative practical reason is given by the representation of a favoring relation in a particular context. Such representations require an agent doing the representing. Qua objects of thought, such reasons do not exist without there being a reasoner who has entertained or asserted the relevant favoring proposition. In this regard, reason-based warrant is internalist in the relational sense. But that's the no part, my answer. This is not to say that reason-based warrant is internalist in the relational sense for the agent considering the action. The representation that yields a reason need not be by the person considering a particular action. It could be the representation of a well-placed observer. For example, the reason I should give to charity A rather than charity B may be given by your correct representation of how the normatively loaded fact of the harmfulness of Charity B's actions favor not giving to Charity B. My belief that Charity B is dedicated to an important cause does not change anything about this. So if a well-placed observer's representation is true while the agent's own is false, reason-based warrant is externalist for the agent in the relational sense. Okay, I go on a little bit more about this on the paper, but I think I'm just going to skip now and summarize. So the view of practical normativity that I'm arguing for here is the following. It starts with the stipulation that there are normative facts. If a normative fact favors action A by agent X in circumstances C, it gives rise to entitlement warrant. In virtue of the normative fact being what it is, agent X is entitled to do A and C. Reason-based justification, by contrast, involves the propositional representation of a fact-based favoring relation. So more precisely, a normative practical reason on the view I'm developing is a true representation of fact-based favoring. Okay, so that concludes part four and brings me to the fifth um, section of the paper where I deal with uh, some objection to the view that I've developed. There are two objections that I can handle fairly swiftly, I think, and then one, as you can also see on the handout, uh, where I take a little longer. But first, let me repeat that I have not provided an argument for the truth of normative factualism, the claim that there are states of affairs with the normative properties to favour action. All I've argued for is that normative factualism is the starting point for an attractive way to ac accommodate realist intuitions about practical normativity. 
because it involves normative factionalism, the view is, of course, vulnerable to the metaphysical objection. The objection, as I've stated it earlier, is that normative factionalism is unnecessarily metaphysically demanding. And as we saw, it's not just critics of metanormative realism who have raised this objection against normative factionalism. As explained, many realists about reasons or metanormative realists are also worried about setting the metaphysical bar too high. My reply to this metaphysical objection is only a partial reply. I'm hoping that my argument, if correct, has shown that normative factualism is not unnecessarily metaphysically demanding. It obviously raises questions about how we're supposed to account for normative facts, questions I can't answer in the context of this paper. So it's clearly a metaphysically demanding view. But I've argued it is not unnecessarily demanding. The advantage of normative factualism, that it is the basis of a conception of practical normativity that reconciles realist intuitions about practical normativity with an attractive view of reasons. So much for the metaphysical objection. Then on a second objection that one might raise against the view I have presented is that the version of the transparency objection may also affect the view that I'm proposing. The objection was that an explanation is required of what makes a consideration a reason. And so one might wonder whether normative factualism is vulnerable, or especially the combination of normative factualism and propositionalism about reasons, as I understand them, um, is vulnerable to a similar objection. But I don't think uh, it is. I accept that there may be something mysterious about the idea of normative facts. Whatever one might want to say about this issue, however, it is important to see that the worry about factualism, about reasons, gives rise um, to, is distinct. The main target of the transparency objection, as I've stated it, is the mysterious connection between non-normative facts that are at the center of the reasons relation and reasons. If the facts that give rise to reasons are true propositions, it cannot remain mysterious what the representational content of those propositions is. If the representational content is non-normative, then we are lacking an explanation of the normativity of reasons. And my view does not suffer from this problem, I want to claim, because first, my view starts from normative facts, not from non-normative facts. And in addition, it offers an explanation of what normative reasons for action are. They are true propositional representations of fact-based favoring. So that brings me to the third objection, which I consider the most serious one. For lack of a better term, and if anyone has some helpful suggestion here, I'll be very grateful to hear them, I call it the myth of the given objection. The objection claims that only what is propositionally structured can generate warrant. Granting that reasons are propositions, the claim is that what cannot be represented propositionally does not generate warrant. So what I need to show is that there can be a type of warrant for action that does not presuppose propositional representation. And I need to explain how entitlement warrant for action does not presuppose that the fact-based favoring relation can be represented propositionally. My strategy in reply to this objection is to use an argument that Mark Caldron makes in support of the claim that there can be warrant without propositional content. His argument, like Burgess, focuses on the case of perception, but it can be applied to the practical context too, or so I want to claim. So let me first retrace Caldron's argument for the case of perception and then develop it for the practical context that I'm focusing on here. So Caldron distinguishes between particulars, on the one hand, and thoughts. Caldron takes perception to be of particulars. Following Johnston, he argues that particulars are present or sampled in perception. Thoughts, by contrast, generalize. Thoughts, whether entertained in private or asserted publicly, have propositional content but perceptional experiences of particulars do not. Here's a quote. 
If perception is a mode of taking in, the objects of sensory awareness are selectively made present, but not synthesized by our sensibility. From this perspective, any felt need for synthesizing activity to confer unity about sensory manifolds already represents a withdrawal from the world of sensible particulars. So thoughts depend on a generalizing or synthesizing activity, while perceptual experience do not. The realm of thought is given by how we represent the world to ourselves, and as such involves a withdrawal from the world compared to the immediacy of the perceptual experience. This view implies that perceptual content and the content of our thoughts need not be congruent. Because thoughts already imply a withdrawal from the world, the content of thoughts might go beyond what is present in perceptual experiences, just as what is present in those experiences might exceed what is available in thought. Here's how Calderon explains the idea of there being such a gulf between perceptual experiences on the one hand and what is available in reflection. Another quote, if thoughts are categorically distinct from particulars and particulars are given in perception, then what is given in perception is not so much unarticulated as it is inarticulable. The yellowish red of the tomato may be the object of my visual awareness but it is thoughts about the color of the tomato and not the color of the tomato itself that are articulable in judgment and assertion. Vision is, if not blind, then dumb." End of quote. Given this gulf between particulars and thoughts, what is the epistemic significance of perceptual experiences and what is the relation, if any, between perceptual experiences and thoughts? <coughs> This is where it becomes interesting for my purposes. Caldron argues that even if perceptual experiences cannot generate propositional knowledge, this does not rule out that they carry their own type of warrant. First, perceptual experiences are important for propositional knowledge because these experiences make thoughts about a subject matter available. Another quote, seeing the yellowish red of the tomato makes may make thoughts about that color available to me." End of quote. In addition, propositions that are entertained or asserted when these thoughts are formed may be made true by the fact sampled in perception. Perception can thus change the perceiver's epistemic status even if it cannot by itself generate propositional knowledge. Another quote, perception constitutes a change in the subject's knowledge potential whether or not such knowledge is in fact activated. So in sum, Caldron's argument is this. Pro perceptual experiences, although not propositionally structured, warrant certain judgments. The source of the warrant is the object of perception, the particular that is present in a perceptual experience. That type of warrant is different, however, from the type of warrant our thoughts might have. While perceptual experiences cannot by themselves generate propositional knowledge, there is nevertheless a connection between the perceptual experience and propositional knowledge. First, perceptual experiences make thought about a subject matter available, and second, the facts sampled in perception can make certain propositions entertained in thought true. Perceptual experiences thus have an indirect role to play in the generation of propositional knowledge. At the same time, because the content of perceptual experiences may exceed the content of thoughts, there might be limits to what can be captured in thought. So an argument along similar lines, um, I think, uh, will help me out um, in the practical case too. But first, I need to point out a problem with Caldrum Caldron's argument as he presents it. The problem is that he obscures the distinction that I drew between entitlement and reason-based justification, and therefore between a fact-based favoring relation and reasons. He obscures the distinction by calling a fact, for example, the yellowish red of the tomato that gives rise to non-propositionally structured perceptual experiences, a reason. And he cites um, the realist uh, view of reasons, what I call factualist, uh, in this paper. 
So here's an example from a, a passage from the paper, uh, Calderon's paper. Quote, the yellowish red of the tomato lacks a propositional structure. It is an aspect of how things are independently of me. The yellowish red of the tomato is a reason that warns judging that the tomato is yellowish red. So in this regard, I part company with uh, Caldron. I consider this move problematic in several ways. First, it glosses over the distinction between two conflicting interpretations of what I've called factualism about reasons. In particular, the facts as truth maker interpretation and the facts as true propositions interpretation. Second, if facts in the sense of particulars are reasons, it is not clear how Caldron's claim that there are two types of warrant can be supported. As we saw, Caldron insists that the facts that are being sampled in perception provide a type of warrant for judgments that is distinct from and only indirectly related to the warrant that propositional knowledge enjoys. But if the facts that are being sampled are reasons, then it would appear that there's only one type of warrant, that of reasons. The claim that there are two types of warrant is naturally supported by contrast if we distinguish, as I've been doing, between entitlements in Burge's sense and reasons and recognize that while perceptual experience of particulars can be warranted, there is a gap between judgments warranted by perceptual experiences and the warrant that the true <laughs> thoughts that constitute propositional knowledge enjoy. Finally, the failure to distinguish between entitlement warrant and reason-based justification also commits Caldron to an implausible account of reasons. Caldron's association of particulars with reasons has the baffling imp implication that at least some reasons are inarticulable. Caldron both maintains that what is given in perceptual experiences is not in propositional form and hence inarticulable, and that it is a reason. As I explained earlier, in the context of the normativity objection, reasons must be articulable, and they thus belong to the realm of generalization involving thoughts, not the realm of particulars. So if we distinguish more sharply between the fact-based favoring relation and reasons, the view becomes much more plausible. The view then becomes this. The perceptual experience of particulars entitles one to certain judgments. The experience of those particulars also makes thoughts about them available and thus grounds propositional knowledge about them. But it is the fact-based favoring relation that does the grounding. The yellowish red of the tomato is not itself a reason to judge that the tomato is yellowish red. Facts are not reasons and reason-based warrant is different from fact-based warrant. Whereas the fact-based favoring relation is inarticulable in Calderon's sense, reason-based warrant is articulable. It belongs to the realm of thoughts. The reason to judge that the tomato is yellowish red is the true proposition that the tomato is yellowish red that forms the content of a thought about the color of the tomato. The proposition is made true by the state of affair that is sampled in perception. If we apply this view to the practical case, we get the following picture. The starting point is normative factualism, the view that there are facts as states of affairs that favor acting in certain ways in certain contexts. We might also assume, although I have not argued for this and it's not directly relevant to the argument, but just for the sake of the parallel, we might assume that it's possible to experience these facts in some way whether through some form of moral perception or, um, or some form of intuition. This possibility would explain how we might sample normative facts. Sampling enables one to act as one is entitled to. Sampling is not necessary for acting in accordance with an entitlement, of course, but it helps one grasp an entitlement. So in the context of this paper, I'm not concerned with how sampling might work or how we might distinguish between a proper sampling experience and an experience that fails to sample the normative facts. I'm only interested in the possibility of entitlement warrant given by fact-based favoring as distinct from reason-based justification. What is important in the context of this paper is that normative facts give rise to their own type of warrant, one that does not by itself generate or entail 
a reason-based justification for action. If we allow that some faculty of intuition or perception might allow us to sample normative facts, we can then paraphrase Calderon by saying that our moral faculties, faculties of intuition or perception, are not blind, but dumb. What is reason-giving are true thoughts about the fact-based fact favoring relation, by contrast. These thoughts contain true propositions, and the propositions are made true by the normative facts. Even a sampling experience does not, by itself, entail or generate a reason-based justification to act. In sampling, it is normative facts that are sampled, particulars, in Calderon's language, not thoughts. The experience may, however, make thoughts about the fact-based favoring relation available. This explanation of a distinction between the two types of practical warrant preserves the features I introduced earlier. I described entitlement warrant as externalist in both a relational and a content sense. Entitlement warrant for action is externalist in the relational sense because it depends on the action on the agent's relation to the normative facts in some contexts. It is also externalist in the content sense because entitlement obtains even if there's no conceptual access to the fact-based favoring relation that gives rise to the entitlement. And vice versa, I described reason-based warrant as internalist in the content sense. It is internalist in this sense because what has been articulated in the realm of thoughts is at least in principle conceptually accessible to the agents. And I described reason-based warrant as internalist in the relational sense for at least some agents, if not necessarily for the agent on the consideration. This is so because for a reason to exist, some agent must have had thoughts about the fact-based favoring relation. Without articulation in propositional form, there are no reasons, only entitlements. Even if the experience of normative facts might make thoughts about favoring relations available and thus facilitates the discovery of reasons, reason-based warrant does not reduce to fact-based favoring because the experience of a normative fact need not be in the propositional form that would make it a reason. In addition, because the agent having these true thoughts need not be the agent who we are evaluating, however, there are, remains an, external, an externalist element in reason-based warrant, as I understand it. Okay, um, so that really concludes the paper, just perhaps briefly. So my aim, in case you missed it, was to argue that there are two types of practical warrant, entitlement warrant and reason-based justification. Normative facts are the source of entitlement warrant, um, but such normative facts, understood as states of affairs, are not reasons. So I've argued that there's a necessary gap between fact-based favoring and reason-based favoring, because reasons depend on our thoughts in a way that normative facts do not. And I'll stop here. Thank you very much.